Hello and welcome to the Apologetics 315 podcast with your hosts, Brian Auten and Chad Gross. Join us for conversations and interviews on the topics of apologetics, evangelism, and the Christian worldview. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm here with Chad Gross. How you doing, Chad? I'm doing well. I have a question for you. Yeah. I've been wanting to ask you this for quite some time. So as as I've talked about on the podcast before, I in the past, let's see here, about four years have had various like health struggles. Now, thankfully, it hasn't been anything fatal or anything like that, but it's been enough to be uh, debilitating at times and, and frustrating. And uh, one of the things that the doctors like every single doctor, you know, because over here, I don't know how it is in the UK, but over here. You have to go to a different doctor for every single little thing, right? Yeah. You know, the, gone are the days where just one doctor takes care of a lot of things. And uh, so every doctor that I went to uh, kept suggesting that I needed to learn to relax. And they would say, do you have any hobbies? <laughs> do you have any hobbies? <laughs> and I would inevitably say, actually, I read and write a lot. But then when I thought about reading and writing, I thought, it's not really relaxing for me, though, because I, I typically look at that as I'm trying to make my point or I'm trying to learn something or so I was reading one day that coloring is very relaxing uh -huh. and it actually mimics uh, some of the same benefits that you get from meditation. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So, of course, as I've talked about before, I'm a, I'm a fan of Masters of the Universe, right? No, you've so got I, an adult coloring book, don't you? So I got on Amazon and I look, it's not even an adult one, man. And I looked up <laughs> and I looked up Masters of the Universe coloring books and I've been coloring and it actually is relaxing. I don't have any expectations for myself, you know. And so my question is, is my wife and kids think it's really weird. So I was wondering what my my friend, my buddy, my podcast and partner thinks of me coloring to relax. What What is your initial reaction? I thought you would have got a Ghostbusters coloring book, but I suppose <sighs> Masters of the Universe is cool. Well, that'll be next. That'll be next. Yeah, I mean, you go on your Amazon wish list and there's like all these coloring books now. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So other than coloring uh, and, and actually finding it quite relaxing, therapeutic, uh, school starts uh, tomorrow, which whenever you're listening to the podcast, it's actually August 30th. And uh, I have the smallest class I've ever had this year. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that's all going to play out. But uh, I've been busy getting my classroom ready and everything set up and copied and all that good stuff. So, uh -huh. yeah, that's how I'm doing. I'm coloring and educating. <laughs> now, I'm looking at your Amazon wish list here and I'm see the coloring books. But what is also these fridge magnets as well? Is that Danielle's wish list? Yes. Yes. Hang up all your artwork afterwards. Yes. Yeah, that's that's okay. for Danielle. That was just, just coincidental. Um, and the fact that, you know, the magnets have like Slimer and Battle Cat on them, uh, that that just happens to match the green matches the decor of the kitchen. Oh, dear. So. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is excellent news. Thank you. 
So speaking of the podcast today, we have a guest today. It's not an interview where we're interviewing the person and to find out all about their work and their stuff, but we're asking our guest to come on to have a conversation in order to address a listener question. Yes, those who email us at podcast at apologetics315.com, we're open to your questions. We're guaranteed to read it if you do mention a Ghostbusters quote within it, but this one was particularly compelling, and we thought we would address it by having someone on who can speak to it a little bit better than we can, or that I can, for sure. Our guest today is Kurt Jarris. He is the director of Defenders Media. He's a nonprofit executive director. He's a Christian apologist, and he does uh, his scholarly work in systematic and historical theology. His interests are in philosophy of religion and New Testament studies, and he's done doctoral research analyzing the doctrine of original sin. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that as well, but his PhD is from the University of Aberdeen. He holds MAs in Christian apologetics. So you can find out more about Kurt at KurtJarris.com. Now, you're wondering how to spell that. It's K-U-R-T-J-A-R-O-S.com. It looks like Jarros, but it's Jarris like Paris. KurtJarris.com. So uh, looking forward to this conversation, and I hope you find it helpful as we answer this listener question. Let's get ready. Switch me on. Kurt Jarris, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks to be on here, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have you. And now we're going to be having you with us today for a conversation to talk a little bit about a listener email. But before we get to it, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're up to and your background and uh, what keeps you busy. Thanks. Yeah, uh, some of you, I don't know if you picked up the sizzling there, Dr. Pepper, but uh, drinking Dr. Pepper keeps me busy. It's my favorite drink. Uh, I'm like Daryl Bach. You know, we're, we just it runs through our veins. But no, let's see. So I'm originally from Chicago, uh, born and raised in the Christian church. I was the kid that paid attention in Sunday school. Uh, in high school, I asked the deep questions of life and uh, went on to study philosophy at Biola University. Stuck around because lo and behold, hey, they had a great Christian apologetics program. Then I got married and moved to England for a year. How romantic. I uh, went to school at King's College London, studied systematic theology. Came back to Chicagoland and uh, within two years started a PhD program connected through the University of Aberdeen at Highland Theological College, uh, which is up in Dingwall, Scotland. Uh, great place, great school, uh, fun program. And I've been working in parachurch Christian ministry in apologetics for eight years now. And I'm the executive director of Defenders Media and uh, Defenders uh, creates thought-provoking theological media. We uh, focus in apologetics, and we have a number of different ministries that we own. One of those is a podcast that I started a number of years ago called Veracity Hill, 200 episodes with a lot of big names. And uh, Brian, you and I have interviewed a number of the same people over the years. And uh, another one of those ministries that Defenders helps to support and manage is Apologetics 315. So great to be on this podcast and to be Working with you, of course, this is maybe our first sort of public engagement, but we've you know had messages over a number of years now working together. And thanks again for having me. Hopefully I answered the, the question there, what makes me tick, things like to do. I, I fix up uh, my house in my spare time, bought a fixer-upper, and it takes some effort to make it look nice. So that's kind of how I spend my free time. Well, just to want to know, you know, if you're stressed, what talks you down off the ledge when you're stressed? 
Chat, I'm asking for a friend. Uh, let's see. Yeah, what do you do to relax, to decompress? That's a good question. I'm very good at managing stress. Uh, I, I play basketball. Sometimes that's nice to play. Uh, so that's relaxing. Sometimes sort of just doing the housework can sometimes be a way of calming down. Yeah, I've heard coloring. <laughs> I've, I've heard coloring can be relaxing. I, I just, I've heard that. <laughs> Chad, are you one of those adult Various coloring, uh, you get the coloring books? I, I recently, I recently took up coloring because I had a number of physicians. I was having some health issues and almost every single one of them, no matter what their area of specialty was, would say, you really need to learn to relax. And uh, so I wasn't good at that. And I learned that coloring was... Uh, somewhat relaxing and so i color along with your kids i mean <laughs> uh no just me <laughs> just me do you have a preferred colored pencil you use uh well i have a variety of colored pencils uh so but i've just gotten into it so you know ask me in a few months and i might have some more specifics for you nice yeah, thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. <laughs> is that James White's laugh? Uh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it is. Yes. Oh, boy. Chad, if you could refer Kurt to some of the material, I'd appreciate that. Defenders Media might be interested in picking up like a coloring, you know, apologetics <laughs> coloring book sort of thing. You know, you got the... Imagine Different if you chapters, made like a like, coloring book with apologists. So like you could yeah. color in, you know, oh my gosh. <laughs> I would do that. I would do that. What is that? It's a plane. What's it doing here? I think it's a mail plane. Kurt, we wanted to have you on the podcast to help us sort of think through perspectives and answers in addressing a listener question. We got an email from Jim. Jim says, hello. I listen to your podcast sometimes. Question, how is God just, let alone loving, to create billions of souls who are damned from the moment of conception unless he chooses to redeem them? The billions didn't choose to be created and have a sin nature they didn't choose. Rather, they inherited? Thanks. So, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of little angles to that and themes to that, but I wanted to look at that and um, see what your first reactions are to it, Kurt, and maybe different ways that people have looked at those questions over the years. Yeah, Jim, that's a great question. This is one of the common objections against Christian theism. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if, if you are a believer or uh, not. Perhaps you had an upbringing as a believer. The way you phrase the question tells me that you very likely came from a Reformed background, because the way you phrased that uh, idea of uh, condemned from conception, if I'm recalling the language correctly, uh, is a belief held in the Reformed tradition on the doctrine. Uh, it's a subtenant in the doctrine of original sin. What did we inherit from Adam? And so some people, some Christians believe that we inherit the very guilt of Adam and that we are guilty in the womb from conception. Is, is some of this belief comes from poetic language in Psalm 51, uh, but not all Christians uh, hold to that view that we are born guilty, or rather that we're even guilty from conception. So Christians have a variety of perspectives on this. And before I even sort of jump in without going any further, I want to sort of take, take a step back. Theology can be very complex, and our beliefs about certain ideas can affect 
how we embrace or reject other ideas. And so sometimes I like to say theology is a pick your poison game because there's no perfect system. Every uh, model beliefs have weaknesses. And sometimes you just have to pick what mess you want to be willing to deal with and to what tension you want to live with. Uh, so that's sort of the first caveat, uh, because some people are willing to live with messes that others aren't. And so we find ourselves embracing a certain model or interpretation of scripture because we believe it fits with certain preliminary beliefs we have, and that affects sort of the secondary issues and the tertiary issues. All right. Now, there are that said, there are different views on the eternal state and how we get there specifically. So there are two major camps. We'll call them pluralism and particularism. The pluralist is someone who believes that there are many ways to God. I sort of draw a fun distinction between a general universalist that always can lead to God, uh, but really evil people, whatever path they pick, nah, they don't get it. Uh, it's just sort of a general view because it's sort of inconsistent, I think, with the concept of universal all, right, always lead to God. Or there's the exhaustive universalist position, uh, which is simply that God will save every person, even Pol Pot, Hitler, Stalin, uh, and Grandma. Um, <laughs> grandma was really bad, this Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know how Grandma fits with those <laughs> other guys, but okay. So know. that's just sort of a, a overview of pluralism. And, you know, John Hick was a famous philosopher in, from the 20th century, uh, he really popularized uh, an Eastern analogy, the, the elephant and the blind man. If you're familiar with that story, uh, how the blind men all sort of get just a small taste or picture of what the elephant feels like. They can't see the elephant, so they describe the elephant differently. Uh, lo and behold, uh, it's just it's an elephant, right? So they all, they all kind of have some aspect to truth, right? So the idea here is that all religions have some aspect to truth, and they all will lead to God. Well, I mean, there's another perspective, too. It's the narrator, and the narrator's telling us what the blind men are actually like and what they're feeling, and the narrator actually has the whole truth of what's happening. So I, I don't buy pluralism. I don't even find it all that intriguing. Instead, the other camp, the other of the two big camps, is called particularism. As a Christian, uh, I hold to Christian particularism, that Jesus is the only way. And he's the only way for salvation. Under no other name will people be saved, the scripture teaches. So the particularism indicates a, uh, the means through which people are saved. But what exactly is needed for a person to do or believe in order to have Jesus save them? That's sort of the big question. So I want to be clear that as a Christian, I think that Jesus is the only way for salvation. But there are different camps and models and, uh, on what people need to be saved, what is necessary for salvation. And I want to go through and detail some of these camps. And, of course, uh, Brian and Chad, if you guys you know, have any questions along the way, feel free to just interrupt me. Uh, so first, why don't we start with the postmortem opportunity? So this is a largely Roman Catholic position. There are a few Protestant theologians that hold to this view. It's the idea that when you die, God will give you a chance. If, if you haven't heard the gospel, God will give you a chance after you die to be saved. So all people are going to get a, uh, you might say it's plausible. Again, I'm just describing the views. I'm not necessarily asserting or claiming my own here, but it's plausible that God will give every person a chance 
to accept the gospel and be saved in the afterlife. So commonly called purgatory, Protestants typically don't buy it, a few limited do. Seems like it might present a solution to the problem that Jim has proposed here because people will receive knowledge and then they can make a decision based on that knowledge. So while they might never hear of Jesus in this life, they will in the next one and be given that opportunity. So that's sort of the, the post-mortem evangelism subcamp here of particularism. Another one is called universal accessibility. God gives every person a chance in this life, maybe through dreams or visions. This is not commonly accepted, and uh, maybe it's right before death that this occurs, but it is a logical possibility here that somehow, some way, God will, will make it happen. This is related to, closely related, but distinct to a very popular view called restrictivism. Sometimes it's called exclusivism. It's the idea that all those who don't hear the gospel will be condemned. And you're like, wait, how is that related to universal accessibility? Well, because God has decided to structure the world in such a way that those whom he intended to hear the gospel will hear the gospel. And those whom he did not want to hear the gospel, he structured it that way. And that's the reality. Especially Calvinists, they'll say, yeah, there are the elect and the non-elect. There are the reprobate. And so people, uh, in Jim's scenario, people who are born and never hear, they, they never hear the gospel and they die, they are just not part of the elect. And God is holy and just, and who are we to question the Almighty? But for those that he has elected, he will send someone. So now Cornelius in Acts 10, he's kind of a fun figure uh, to think about in these debates. And he's the type of guy that could fit multiple views. But in Acts 10, he hasn't heard the gospel. He's a God-fearer. He gives alms to the poor. He prays. An angel comes and visits him. The angel says to him, hey, what you've done here is pleasing to the Lord. It's a sweet aroma. So what happens? God sends Peter to come share the gospel. And so here, with regard to restrictivism or exclusivism, as it's also known by, you know, God will make a way for those that will accept the gospel. So God's got this all planned out. This viewpoint is probably not going to be all that pal palatable for someone like Jim, because the people that die that aren't elect, they never had a chance. And God structured the world in such a way that that's the case. And that doesn't seem just. Now, I want to totally respect. Jim's intuitions here. Sometimes we say, well, you know, who are we to question the Almighty? I think that's a really bad response because all of us are trying to play this game we call theology. And we all have these moral intuitions about what justice looks like and what mercy looks like. So we're all trying to figure this out. And to say, like, well, who are you to question the Almighty? I mean, it just sort of begs the question from the, the person who poses it that their view is correct. When in fact, I think there are other plausible, certainly plausible options. There's one that's lesser known that, that maybe I'll get into, and it's actually going to be something that I'm going to be presenting a paper on. So maybe we'll backtrack on that. But for the restrictivism, exclusivism camp, there are a number of Bible verses that can go to support this idea. You know, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, that which has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's Acts 4.12. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. 1 John 5, 11, 12. 
And uh, one of my favorites that I have seen commonly used comes from uh, Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the restrictivist has a number of passages which can appear to support their position. But it's an interesting because even the restrictivist might say, well, what about those that don't form beliefs that Jesus is Lord? What happens to those people? The restrictivist might make a few exceptions for the mentally handicapped, maybe even for the unborn. The Westminster Confession of Faith, you know, a reformed document, a reformed confession, has these exceptions. There may be something said here for what ground the Westminster Confession of Faith can make that claim. People can make a claim, they can make an assertion, but does it fit with other beliefs they have? So, I mean, to spell this out a little further, why should we think that there are any unborn infants that are elect? What rationale do we have? I think that's a strong objection against the position here that the restrictivists may claim, this exception that they may make. So now there are a couple more camps, one of which is mine that I identify with. And uh, so I'll, I'll play my hand here. I hold to what's called inclusivism. And inclusivism is the idea that God will judge each man according to the knowledge that they have. And there are a number of passages where this is the case. I like to draw from Romans chapter 2, uh, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So here Paul seems to be spelling out that God's judgment is, in a sense, relative to what we know. Now this, I think, poses a great answer to Jim's concern. What about those who never hear the gospel? Well, God judges men according to the knowledge that they have, say from general revelation. Perhaps there are some, maybe it's a few, maybe it's a lot. But even if it were just a few people who responded in such a way to recognize their fallenness as a human and their relationship to the creator, that they will be saved. Now, it's not because of good works that the person is saved, but the atoning work of Christ on the cross right? It's the atoning work of Christ on the cross that is the means of salvation. So as an inclusivist, I want to recognize that distinction. I'm not saying people who never hear the gospel are saved because of their belief. Of course, the same thing could apply for the Christian if someone were to make that objection, right? The Christian is saved because of some work that they did. No, no. The Christian is saved because of the atoning work of Christ. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift that is accepted. Let's take a, a few other Bible passages. So I mentioned Cornelius, and Cornelius could be used for inclusivism as well because he was a God-fearer. So what happened with these God-fearers? These were Gentiles that uh, recognized the Jewish religion and, and followed it to a certain degree, but they wouldn't go so far as to, say, do the snip-snip, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, that's where we get the Council of Jerusalem dealing with those questions. So what if, what if there was a God-fearer who died before hearing the gospel? What if there's a Gentile who recognized the, the Jewish religion and followed it to a certain degree and, uh, and he died? What would happen to that guy? And let's say he lived in like AD 35 in Spain, 
right? So the gospel doesn't make it there yet. How is that guy judged? Uh, that, that, I think, is a tricky question, especially for the, inclus- the uh, exclusivist. The two major camps in this question on the fate of the unevangelized is the two major camps are the restrictivist or exclusivist camp and the inclusivist camp. These are the two most popular views. So I think there are some other points that could be made for the inclusivist, uh, such as the, the manifestation of Christ in all of creation. So think John 1, 9 through 13, Colossians 1, 16, right? That Christ is prevalent throughout the world and he's working on making all things new. So Christ is a lot closer to non-believers than we realize. Paul's speech at the Areopagus, uh, Acts 17, he, he commands all men to repent. He overlooked their ignorance in the past. That's an intriguing concept when we think about judgment. He's overlooked their ignorance, but now he commands all men to repent. And hey, here it is. Boom. Here's the gospel. So the gospel is being shared to all the nations. And it's our job. Why is this? Well, because the, the gospel, believing the gospel is a sufficient, sufficient condition for salvation. I want to get into some logical categories here because I think some people are mistaken when they quote Romans 10, 9, right? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Some people mistakenly believe that's a necessary condition for salvation. And it's not. It's, that's actually, you're making a logical misstep there. Uh, by committing a denying the antecedent is a logical fallacy. So they would say, well, if you don't confess with your mouth, then you won't be saved. So that's logically fallacious. Rather, what Paul writes here is a sufficient condition for salvation. If you believe this and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. So you can have that certainty. And so when we go to share the gospel with people, we are providing for them the, su- the sufficient condition to be saved. That's why it's important to share the gospel so that they've got a strong chance of having eternal life with the Lord. Yeah, so that's sort of a broad overview. So let me just bring it back home to Jim's comment or question. So there are a number of possible explanations here for Jim on what happens to people who never hear the gospel. Not all of them will necessarily mean that people are destined for hell. Uh, it may depend. It may depend on other factors. It may depend on if there is this middle state in the eternal uh, life. It may depend on God's knowledge of what they would have done in other circumstances. Maybe it depends on how God is going to judge them on the knowledge that they do have, and how they act based on that, what's in their hearts based on their existing knowledge. So it is a complex issue. It's a tough one. But Christians are not without answers. And so I want to encourage Jim to look into these subject matters. Of course, Google's a great place. There are a number of books to check out as well. There's a more recent book, uh, and I think I'm saying his last name correct, uh, James Bilby, I think. Uh, That's how you say it. Uh, He teaches at uh, Bethel in the Twin Cities. He recently published a book in defense of the postmortem evangelism view. And so that would be a resource for someone who wants to look into that. Again, that's just sort of an overview of the camps. I know I sort of tipped my hand, but. Brian and Chad would love to get your thoughts and tell me I'm a heretic, please. Come on. That gives me motivation. He took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Right. So when Jim is asking about God being just or loving, uh, then creating people who are going to be damned, and as the question puts it, from the moment of conception, unless he chooses to redeem them, 
then he says, uh, they didn't choose to be created and have a sin nature. They didn't choose, rather they inherited. So I wonder if we could look at that facet of it where, I mean, you talked about people not being evangelized, but what, what about this element of, or assumption of a sin nature? What role does that play in how we look at that question? And what are the implications, if you will? Yeah, good, good. And Brian, as you said at the beginning, there's sort of multiple ways we could approach the question. So I was spending time here talking about one way of taking it. So here's another aspect mm -hmm. to the question on human nature. So, you know, I don't like saying we have a sin nature, uh, not because I don't believe it's true, but I think it's um, philosophically, it's inaccurate. We have human natures. We're all humans. And so, uh, but we have sinful, comma, human nature. We all are humans here and we do have a fallen nature. We're broken. Something is not right with humanity. Something's broken. This is the, you know, the story that Christianity tells. It's a part of our narrative. Things are not right. I think people can look around and Jim's own question implies things are not right in the world. So what does that mean for us, though? As I had mentioned at the very beginning, you know, some Christians, in particular Calvinists, think that having a sinful human nature means we are guilty and deserving of God's condemnation. The vast majority of Christians, just this, statistically speaking, the vast majority of Christians don't quite hold that view. And uh, while humans are broken, let's say unborn infants are not guilty of Adam's sin. Wesleyans hold to this idea of the age of accountability, that uh, we are considered guilty in the eyes of God once we tra make a transgression against God's law, and that would require having a certain cognitive awareness of what we are doing. So yeah, there are different camps there. But in that sense, I mean, I don't want to push Jim's question too far. Like, is it unfair that we're humans? I mean, that seems sort of odd. In a certain sense, we just inherit the hand we're played, uh, we're dealt, you know, and uh, I inherit certain characteristics and traits from my parents because of their genetic dispositions. I will never become an NBA player despite what I told my dad when I was in third grade. I'm like 5'8", five, 5'9", five, on a good day. I mean, no way I'm playing professional basketball. So sometimes we just were born into a certain reality and there are certain facts of reality that we have to deal with. But that, you know, that might be pushing Jim's question too far, but certainly would love if he would follow up on that. So yeah, what does it mean to have a sinful human nature? Yeah, we are broken. We have propensity to sin. We die, right? We're mortal. This is, this is the world that we live in. And, you know, I thank God for his work in the history of salvation to bring about the incarnation of Christ, his ministry, death and resurrection, and the, uh, the great news that that brings for us. When I look at the question, I guess if I was just having a conversation with someone, I, I guess the way I see it is that, well, I don't, I don't look at the world and think, um, you know, we've all got this sin nature and uh, we can't help sinning. Therefore, it's not fair that God would judge me when I can't help it. So there's a distinction. If I can draw a distinction there, there are some people that think that every action we do is a sinful action. So this is called the doctrine of inability, that we are unable to do anything objectively good. The key word there, objective, objectively good, that everything, maybe there are subjective goods, like civil goods, the atheist walking grandma across the street seems like a good thing, but really the atheist was doing it for selfish ambition, right? There are some people that think that. There are others that think, no, we actually can do some objectively good things. 
maybe perhaps like Cornelius did. But then, so a distinction between the doctrine of inability and the doctrine of inevitability is that at some point in our lives, we all sin. It is inevitable. Uh, so I, I just want to make that distinction there because that's important sometimes when we're having these discussions, what one means uh, when we say that we can't not sin. And this gets into some, some classic debates, Augustinian and Pelagianism. So a lot of fun stuff. I'm smiling. People can't see it, but I'm smiling because I have a lot of fun with this stuff. <laughs> so would it be fair to say, I mean, a common reply that a lot of thinkers will offer is this idea of, yes, you inherited this sin nature, but in order to have free will, right, libertarian free will, you know, they'll argue that you had to have this, you know, evil had to be a choice, right, for and so therefore sin, unfortunately, is going to follow because we're not always going to choose God's way, if you will. Yeah, uh, I mean, what do you what do you make of that? So technically, you wouldn't have to have a sinful human nature in order to have uh, libertarian free will, because mm -hmm. we might say that Adam and Eve had libertarian free will, and some of that depends on how you define libertarian free will. If it's in general the ability to do otherwise, well, they had that. Um, but there are also other forms of libertarian free will, such as the sourcehood view that, well, I'm I'm just. I'm free because I'm the agent. I'm the cause of my actions. So, and sometimes that means there are multiple options from which we could choose. Sometimes it doesn't, right? So there are these Frankfurt cases. I mean, I don't want to get too deep for people. So yeah, so, so there's that, but certainly, yeah, just having human nature means that we have choices to make in our life and how we respond to choices. And sometimes it can be very small choices that can push us a wrong way in a wrong direction. And there can be almost a domino effect that'll lead us a certain direction. So in many ways, you know, every decision we make uh, is, is important. And how we approach thinking about the world can affect our beliefs themselves. To develop a robust sense of the world, I think, requires a lot of meditation and reflection. It requires seeing things narrowly, but also the big picture. So yeah, again, theology is a complex thing. Uh, so Chad, yeah, hopefully that maybe answers your question, but mm -hmm. you certainly could say, yeah, well, the free will defense, you know, in order for evil to exist, we have to have free will, and at least by which Alvin Plantinga means nothing prior causes our uh, decision. That's not to say that we don't have influences. We can have influences, but that we are the cause of our actions. So that would explain why evil exists, uh, at least some evil exists. Yeah. I also wonder, too, as I listen to Jim's question, I was curious if to and, and, you know, it would be great if we actually had him on to be able to ask him, of course, ideally. But when I listened to the question, I almost got the sense and you guys can you know push back on this, that he was almost implying that, OK, God created these people who didn't have a choice in the matter. So there wasn't an opportunity to uh, say, hey, do you want to exist or not? Which is kind of funny because obviously you have to exist to be asked, uh, of course. But uh, there wasn't this opportunity. They didn't choose this. And, and so they're created and then they're put in this world where they're going to, you know, go to hell, if you will. What What would you say to Jim in that sense of, Oh, I almost get the sense that he's saying 
I almost get the sense that he's saying it would have been better for God just not to create at all than to create all these people knowing that they were going to be damned to hell. Yeah, I mean, to that, I would talk about the intrinsic value of human nature, that we all have the image of God and that uh, we are part of God's created order. And in a broad sense, we are all his children. Now, in a particular sense, you know, the scripture demarcates children of God from people who are not. But in a broad, general sense, you know, if you're part of the created order, you're part of God's creation. So, so that, you know, there are goods there. There are external objective goods, valued goods that even non-believers have. And God thinks these people have, you know, intrinsic goods. And this is why Jesus sent his son. So people can receive salvation. We don't know what the future looks like. So while we think, hey, there are billions, you know, that don't hear it, we don't know what the future looks like. Hypothetically speaking, in the end, it could be a small number of people. Now, I know this is uncommon, but I'm thinking logical possibilities here. It's logically possible that there will be trillions of people saved. And so statistically, it will be only a small minority. The scripture does say, you know, that the gate is uh, narrow. Does the scripture teach that? Well, that's up for debate. I've actually heard some interesting interpretations on, on that gate passage. And uh, so it is a tough question, Chad, that you mentioned about, well, God's creating these people, even though they have value, boy, they're going to spend eternity in hell. Again, depending upon your view of the views that I laid out here, there are also other views about where responsibility really is. Maybe people actively reject God, and there are billions of people that actively reject God and do not want to be in a relationship with him. They want no part of him and want to live their own life. And so, again, depending upon your view of hell, you might think like C.S. Lewis, the gates of hell are locked, but they're locked from the inside. These are people that do not want to be with God. And so God respects their choice, their position. So is that really unfair? Well, what if these people don't want a relationship with God? I give this analogy. Again, it's just, a, it's just an analogy. Uh, analogies are either strong or weak. So I let people, you know, make up their minds on this. But, you know, we humans, we like to procreate. It's one, uh, it's one event that humans like to do a lot. And it happens a lot, but people don't really talk about it. But we have progeny, right? We have children. And we don't know. Now, God knows. But, but we don't know what will happen with our children. Some may rebel against us, against our teaching, what we've taught them as children. And they will go off and live their own lives, of their own free will, estranged from their family. What is the family to do? Well, sometimes you can only do the best thing you can. You know, try to show love to the person, hope that they come back, you know, welcome them back into the fold, get the fatted calf ready, you know, to throw a party when they return, hopefully. Sometimes these decisions are with us and we're responsible for our actions. So. It's plausible that there are billions of people that don't want to live in a right, right relationship with God. According to the inclusive, inclusivist position, God gives each according to what they know. God's got this standard that he knows. We don't, have this, we don't know what this is, the formula that God uses to judge people. But let's say there's a Muslim living in Saudi Arabia who maybe even knows about Christianity. Maybe he doesn't really know it all that well, knows about it, but not enough to make a meaningful 
decision about it. God, I think, according to the inclusivist, God's going to evaluate that in his formula. So it's sort of a cooperative decision here as to who's responsible. Well, on inclusivism, the individual is responsible for the beliefs that they have. And God is going to judge the person on what they do with that. So in that sense, each person is responsible for what they believe. On some of these other camps, you know, the formula works a little differently. So one of my concerns is, you know, that Jim here, you know, saying that we're guilty from conception. You know, I I certainly don't hold that view. And I think that ties him to certain views here that he wouldn't otherwise be tied to. So again, yeah, if he were on the show, I'd ask him some questions and, um, you know, be interested to see if we can move, or at least I, again, I don't even know where you guys in particular stand on some of these issues, but to see if I can move him over a few points or a few ticks on the spectrum. And that might open up other options for him. Uh, I'll take a crack at what sort of the way I think through this. I don't know all the different views, and that's why I've had you on to kind of unpack the different ones. But I kind of take it like this, uh, where where he, the question starts out, how is God just, let alone loving? And then he gives you the situation. I don't determine God's ju- justness or his lovingness by my ability to understand a certain scenario. So I would start with, well, I just take that as a given. This is, that's bedrock for me. God is just and, and loving. So I've got various reasons to believe that already and so that are solid in my own thinking. So I'm not going to use a insecure footing to try to judge those things. Then he says to create billions of souls who are damned from the moment of conception. So when I look at that, I think anytime I see a huge number, I just say, let's simplify and say 10 people. Because if I throw around billions, that makes it, ooh, like billions of people are suffering. Well, what if there was 10 people? Multiplying anything by a billion makes it sound like it's just absolutely terrible. You know, if you stubbed your toe, that's not that bad. It's bad, but it's not that bad. But if you say billions of people are stubbing their toes every day, Oh man, we got to do something about this. You know, it, <laughs> you, you, know you should have heard my, uh, my second born, uh, you know, my five-year-old, she stubbed her toe and wow, was she suffering? Yeah. Well, no, I don't mean to minimize that by making a joke of stubbing a toe. This is a different scale. This is people's, you know, eternity. But yep. at the same time, when I see billions, I say, okay, how does this make sense in a, in a range of smaller numbers? If, if God was a judge and, and there was 10 people in this room and he's going to be just and loving to these people, are they damned from the moment of conception? Well, I mean, the scriptures, to, to my mind, it seems that that's it, not the languages that I'm hearing in the scriptures. It's, it's people are judged according to their own rebellion, their own wicked deeds, their own things that they've chosen to do. Um, and so whether or not you have propensities one way or another, whether it's inevitable that you're eventually going to sin or whatever, I mean, you're still, what kind of sins are we talking about? Are we talking about, uh, oops, oh man, I'm really, man, I shouldn't have done that versus I don't care and I want to do more. Um, so there's different sort of heart people that, that people have. But if God is just and God is loving, I'm leaving that up to him. I'm not going to try to say, well, seeing that all these people have been punished, man, how can God be just and loving if all these people are being punished? Well, 
we don't know their hearts. God alone knows. So I, I would I would start up when I look at the idea or the scenario, I think, well, I know that God is just. I know that God is loving. I know that his, he is omniscient and he is able to orchestrate things in the world and have people hear the message if they need to, that he knows what people would do. All these things that I know about his character makes me trust in his judgment. So I don't, I don't kind of like look at the scenario and say, well, gee, um, sin, sin nature's coming first in my categories of what I really know here. And then I'm going to judge God's uh, lovingness and justice. I'm like, I don't really understand the whole sin nature thing. So that's like the last thing I take into account. So that's how I process through that question. Jim, if you're listening, if you've made it this far, I, I start out with, you know, assuming God is just, assuming he's loving, that he's omniscient, and that he is a perfect judge, and that what, whatever way we come to sin or rebel against God, his justice will be perfect. You know, there's no one's going to stand before God and say, no fair. That's how I see it. Nobody's ever going to receive their judgment and say, this wasn't fair. What? They're going to be like, no, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, they might not like the the outcome, I don't think, you know, but I think no one will look at God's judgment ultimately and say, well, that wasn't fair. They'll be like, well, that was the perfect judgment because he has the full knowledge. So um, anyway, that's just how I see it. I Yeah, I think what you're what you're offering to Jim is, you know, sort of what I was suggesting that, you know, if Jim sort of shifted his views one to two ticks on some beliefs it might help alleviate his concerns here. Are you talking about the idea the idea of uh, if you're being damned from the conception because of a sin nature that you've inherited? Yeah, yeah. I, I, the whole doctrinal thing here that is assumed within the question is that people have sin natures they didn't choose. They're damned from the moment of conception unless God steps in. So it's like everyone's started on this track right into the flames, so to speak, unless he intervenes. It's, oh, I couldn't help it. You set me on this track of damnation unless, well, even, you know. Even what you've suggested about sort of these assumptions, we have that God is just and God is loving. So let's take this unborn infant for Jim. Jim claims they are allegedly guilty, but God is all loving, all just. You know, if God is loving and just, and there's, you know, this exhaustive knowledge of and rationale, there's this formula that God has for determining if someone is guilty or not guilty. And so I think if Jim were to consider that a little deeper, he might question some of the beliefs he has, like I said, maybe one or two ticks away from where he's currently at, and that could open up a whole new ballgame for him. I don't even think he necessarily has to take the suggestions I'm offering. He, He could adopt some other positions here. Yeah, I mean, I like what you said, Brian, about, you know, we know these things, that God is loving, God is just. And so I think if Jim were to reflect on that, you know, he might shift his views on some other things he, other beliefs he has. And of course, uh, you know, he he might only think that if he's uh, listening to this episode, because, you know, he only says he sometimes listens to the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I was just thinking that, yeah, one of the the things I see in the question is a lot of things are assumed and a lot of those things... I think you what you've pointed out is a lot of the things that Jim is assuming uh, are not necessarily things that all Christians hold. And so there are views, um, some of which you mapped out that may be more appealing that get to the heart of the question a little more than than this kind of strict, more Calvinistic view. 
maybe not answered, but there are plausible answers that could be embraced. And that can help alleviate a lot of suffering that I think people, maybe anguish, mental anguish that people have. You know, this is one of the reasons why I love winsome apologetics, because it helps to tear down these obstacles. It helps to alleviate the anguish people feel and perceive. So I think if people studied more, then they could come across more answers and uh, may find that some of them are more palatable than others. I'm not saying that there's, yeah, this definitive answer. Again, theology is a pick your poison, but I think some answers are definitely better than others. Yeah, so I just want to encourage Jim to keep exploring. Don't just be content with shooting an email, but keep listening to the podcast. Seek out some other podcasts as well. Read some books. Keep learning. Keep keep up the journey. And hopefully you'll find some more refreshing answers along the way. Jim, thanks for the email. I do appreciate it. And all we can do is go by what was written in the email, you know, with the question. So when we say, Jim says this, Jim thinks that, it's only because that's what we're gathering from what you've written. And right. that's the best uh, data we have. So maybe I'm certain we're misrepresenting you as far as being 100% accurate to what you believe. But just going by what you wrote there, if this has helped you, um, I hope to hear from you. And if it hasn't, please let us know. We'd love to hear that as well. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have a question you'd like us to address or just a message for us, feedback, good or bad, you can either email us at podcast at apologetics315.com or leave a voice message for us using SpeakPipe. Just go to speakpipe.com slash apologetics315 to leave us a message. And remember, if you include a Ghostbusters quote in your question, we guarantee that we'll read it on the podcast. We also ensure up to 50% better quality answers. Also, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice. And please share this episode with a friend if you found it useful. Remember, you can find lots of apologetics resources at apologetics315.com, along with show notes for today's episode. Find Chad's apologetic stuff over at Truthbomb Apologetics. That's truthbomb.blogspot.com. This has been Brian Auten and Chad Gross for the Apologetics 315 podcast, and thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.